Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Today, we are joined by Ben Springwater, founder of Matter. Now, we could call Matter a reading app. We could call it an evolution of the original Read It Later apps. But any classification that we try to give it seems to understate all that Matter is building or has built already. We talk to a lot of traditional media operators on the show, but Ben falls slightly outside that box. There are constant frustrations about how we get served media. There's infinite content, and it's harder and harder to separate the good from the bad. I experience this personally, and a lot of people share their frustrations with me as well. In my eyes, Ben is working to solve that problem. We had a fun conversation about what it's like to build a product like Matter. So there's the technical challenges, there's the human challenges, and then there's how Matter's team thinks about making those decisions. It was very interesting to get Ben's perspective there. And then we shift in to his favorite content. I love when founders are clearly building something that they want to use. When we talked to the co-founder of The Athletic, Adam Hansman, several weeks ago, that was so obvious to us. And Ben is another great example here. So please enjoy this conversation with Ben and check out the show notes for links to some great content and some more info on Matter. All right, Ben, I am very personally excited, and I think I speak on behalf of Dom as well, that he is excited to have you here to talk about Matter, to talk about the dynamics in content today, what problem you're trying to solve, which I think is really, really interesting. And I wanted to just start at the highest of levels. I know you were an OG pocket user, you and your co-founder, which I align with and was a user myself. I just want to understand, when you were first coming out to launch Matter, what was the catalyst to do it? What problem were you trying to solve? What was the idea that you were going after? There were a couple things. So like you said, my co-founder Rob and I were pocket users. We met at Nextdoor. And part of the reason that we bonded initially was because we were both big readers and pocket users. And we were frustrated that we had to stitch together different tools to manage our reading lists. And more generally, we felt like the state of reading apps just wasn't very good. These tools had gotten kind of long in the tooth. And it was a little bit puzzling because reading for many of us is such an important and consequential behavior in our lives. And so we noticed this gap between the tools that we had and the importance of what they served. And thought there was an opportunity to do something better. Now, at the same time, I had been sending a monthly roundup of links to friends and family, kind of the best things that I had read that month. 
And this was a complete hobby. I was doing it through Gmail. And I realized a few things. So one, I was spending a good amount of time every month seeking out these good things to read, sifting through Twitter, diving into blogs, and so forth. Two, people seemed to really like it. I got very positive feedback from my friends. And so I realized this may sound obvious to say, but there is value in curation. There's value in doing the labor to find good stuff so that other people don't have to spend the time doing that search. They get to spend their time reading it. And the other thing I realized was that I was only scratching the surface of what was out there. It was the very tip of the iceberg of great content that I was being exposed to. And so I realized that there was just much, much, much more great, timeless stuff that I probably would never get to, ultimately. And the thing that really animated us when we started Matter, besides building a better tool that improved on some of the workflows that we were dissatisfied with, was this question of whether we could scale up what I was doing, this manual curation that I was doing, scale it up, productize it, personalize it, and effectively create a better decision engine for people that would help them make better decisions about what to read every day. Awesome. And we'll get into all the different ways that you help people find awesome ideas. You have two sites in particular, in addition to Matter itself, in particular inspiring for me. And we talk mostly on this show about making media and content creation itself. But you've already mentioned that there was kind of a technological gap, if you like, for what Matter now does. And as someone who's technically incompetent, can you just like talk me through the challenges of helping people to read and find incredible writing? What has to happen under the hood to deliver kind of the seamless experience that we get through Matter? I'll break that into two parts. Some of the issues around the tool of reading and the reading experience itself, the more traditional read later, read later plus features, and then the recommendation system and the decision engine for reading, which I should state up front, we have not achieved that yet. That's the vision. We're working toward it. The mini sites that you referenced were in some ways proof of concepts that will feed into that. And it's really the primary focus this coming year. We can talk more about that. I think those sort of warrant separate conversations. I'll speak kind of quickly to the tool paper cuts and improvements. Just with basic read later, parsing content that you save to a list is actually a pretty challenging thing given the surface area of what you encounter on the web. And creating a parser so that you can reliably produce very good readability is a pretty big ongoing investment for us. So that was one thing we thought pocket and paper could be improved on. Another is the quality of text-to-speech and this idea that you should be able to listen to written content and eventually read audio content and seamlessly switch back and forth between those two modalities. And we could see that the technologies that were powering text-to-speech and transcription, the inverse, were getting better. They were getting more accurate and more human-like. And ultimately, it would be basically perfect. And we're getting pretty close today. And so we thought there was an opportunity to incorporate those into a product. At the time, newsletters were becoming ascendant, and there still wasn't a good solution for where to read newsletters. Like your inbox isn't a great place to read, and 
no product integrated your newsletters into the place that you went to read. Those were a few of the more tool-specific problems that we wanted to improve on. The second question about what goes into building a good recommendation engine, this is a really interesting topic that, again, I want to emphasize that we have by no means solved, but I do have a lot of opinions about it, and I will share those. So when people think of recommendation systems, and by the way, I don't really like using the word recommendation system because it has so much baggage and so many connotations because you think news aggregator. And there are a few failure modes that I think most of these recommendation systems have fallen into. One is they index so heavily on recency. And in large part, that's just keying off of what most people pay attention to. But there's a huge recency bias around how these algorithms make recommendations. Second, and related to that, they key very heavily off of popularity. And by definition, that is going to miss all of the hidden gems and needles in the haystack that I think are the most rewarding things to read. And just to further elaborate on that point, I sort of think about good curation and good recommendations as occupying a quadrant in this two-by-two matrix where one axis is quality and the second axis is how obvious or non-obvious it is. It's a little bit like the Peter Thiel non-consensus and right. That's the quadrant you want to be in. A curator or recommender, you want to be in the high quality, non-obvious. Quality speaks for itself. But if you're in high quality and obvious, then you're not really offering value over replacement. Someone can see the cover article on the New York Times Magazine. They don't need your help for that. Pulling it back, these recommendation systems key very heavily off of what's popular. And then the third thing is they key off of your interests. And in my opinion, over-index on the signal that you've given them about what you're interested in. So if you think about this explore-exploit trade-off of exploiting an interest that we know you have, they sort of are all on the side of exploit. That produces results that get really boring and you get cornered into interest. And part of the issue is they don't have enough signal. No system is going to have enough signal to encompass the vastness of what you're interested in, what you might be interested in. I think taking those three things, you can kind of invert them and say, one of the things we want to do is focus more on timeless content, not on what's most recent. Find the non-obvious stuff, not just the stuff that's most popular and most shared. And then third, balance, explore, and exploit. So Personalization means if we know you're interested in something, it's very powerful to say, you've been reading about microprocessors. Here are three more really canonical essential pieces that go deeper on that topic. That's really powerful. But we don't want to only give you that. We want to continue providing serendipity and range. You're solving an issue that I think is really a challenge for me. I think of my Twitter feed sometimes, and it's this echo chamber. And then I find somebody who's a new follow. And they have this reading list, which is completely unlike anything that's showing up in my feed. It's different articles. It's different stories. I often reference a previous guest, Web Bar, was like this eye-opening experience for me because he had all this content that he had recommended over the years. And it was nothing it like... Discovered him through your show. <laughs> it's And so many different things. And I'm curious, when you think about the curation problem, you yourself were curating for others. And that was part of the catalyst here. 
when you think about matter as it evolves over time, how much of this is matter trying to algorithmically solve that curation issue versus how much is it potentially a social thing where it's a multiplayer mode. I can not just follow authors. I can follow people and see what they're reading, what they're recommending. I assume the answer is you've thought about that. But how do you think about that in solving the curation challenges? It's definitely both and. And we think that most effective system is going to be a hybrid between algorithms and human curators. I think it's very unlikely we'll get to a point where the locus of trust no longer becomes relevant. And we certainly don't want it to be just me or just our team doing the curation as a way of scaling that up to curate the curators. And if we can find people who we think have good taste and contribute interesting stuff, then that becomes this new input into our system. And you can imagine scaling that up and having a fire hose, of not like an RSS fire hose that's pulling in the front page of Vox, but that's pulling in the long tail recommended by all these really interesting people. One of the really hard problems is quality and maintaining a high quality bar. And relying on people who we trust is probably the best way of solving that quality problem. And the way that our system is currently coming together, and again, this is very much work in progress, we have what's essentially a big pool of content that we think is above a certain quality bar because it's been recommended by people or we've read it and can vouch for it and so on. And we want to keep growing that content pool because that allows us to cater to more and more niche things. But then the question becomes, how do you distribute content from this pool to people in a way that matches their interests or that they're most going to like, that they're most going to appreciate? And in a way where you can deliver regular value, because we don't want to just say, here's a huge archive of links. The psychology of that just doesn't work. There's the paradox of choice. It's overwhelming. We want to be able to deliver daily value, not too much, not too little. But to answer your question, it's going to be a hybrid. Is there one part of that that the computer would be better at? As in, like, it's really good if it knows you like this thing at surfacing other great things around there, but it struggles with going to find other pockets that you may like, but doesn't have enough data to tell it that that's something that you would enjoy. What the computer is really good at is assigning topics that are concrete to content and understanding relationships that are on a certain topic like microprocessors or swimming or whatever. What it's less good at is to date, and it's getting better and better at this. Obviously, the LLMs are super impressive and you know, are starting to approach humans with some of these things. But what it's not there with yet is understanding really high-level, abstract relationships between things. Like if you liked The Road to Self-Renewal, you might also like this other essay because it has a similar tone and theme, implicit worldview. That's something that we think is really interesting to be able to give people more of things like that. But at this point, we still need to rely on humans for it. Yeah, that makes sense. Connecting the dots, I guess, is a way that people often talk about it. I would love if you, to the extent you can share, just interesting user behavior patterns that you see when people are reading. And it can be literally anything, but I'm just intrigued by how other people, like for me, if I want to get into a habit of reading, I need to do it first thing in the day because things will get in the way in my day. And so if I put it towards the end of the day, I'll just never do it and I'll fall asleep. 
and other things could be you know how many articles are actually read the whole way through and those sorts of things but like what kind of science have you picked up from watching or helping people read I'll start with one that is probably going to come as no surprise to you, which is that with read later, saving things for later, people's eyes are way bigger than their stomachs. (laughs) And so it is just a universal law that people save 5x plus more than they actually read. Now, people have different orientations toward their queue, their read later list, which I think is really interesting. Some people are the inbox zero type, and they like to manage their queue down to nothing. And it's a triage system. And other people don't mind having this ever expanding queue. And that sort of doesn't create any mental pressure for them. And they like digging around in there. I happen to be in that camp. People's reading time and context are all over the place. You you probably be familiar with obvious ones. Saturday morning before the kids wake up or at the coffee shop at night before you go to bed. I will say that one thing that we are trying to position matter to do a better job of serving is reading in the smaller moments of the day, those interstitial moments where many people turn to Twitter or other social media because it's really easy to dip into and you've got like two minutes waiting in line, whatever. And by and large, matter is not currently a great solution for most people for that. It just the activation energy of getting into a long reading session. It just doesn't match the context. And ultimately, we would like to offer options for shorter, more digestible, easier to snack on content that's still very high quality. I think there are a lot of people who have this moment of struggle in those moments where they want something for their mind. They want to occupy their attention. They don't want to be (laughs) binging on social media all the time but they don't know what else to do. And in that moment of struggle, we want matter to serve them. It's such a funny, maybe funny to me problem to have because it's people respecting what you're doing. They want to give proper respect to what they're about to consume. And we've experienced that in a variety of different ways where if it's empty calories, it's actually easier for people to use. Once you actually have to really turn that brain on, you could see engagement change a little bit. I'll start with how do you think about solving that? Is it finding those shorter pieces? Is it coming up with some type of notes or annotations to it? What's your thought process in terms of designing to capture that time? Well, you use the term empty calories, which I love. And the metaphor of information as food is such a powerful one. We think about that and use it all the time. And to extend that metaphor, we think that the way to meet that moment is with content that is tasty, snackable, and nutritious. And I think the nutritious, it's time well spent. But the tasty and snackable, those are properties that much of the like really good content doesn't have on its face. Snackable is kind of like how bite-sized is it? How easy is it to get into? And tasty is just how fun, enjoyable, entertaining is it to read? It's hard to find content that is the intersection of all three of those. But I think that's the way. That makes sense. And the follow-up where I was originally going to go was just in general, something like this can be so personalized. Again, with podcasts, I always think about how I'm listening to a podcast, which is very different from the person that's always listening in their car or in a different setting. And designing for each individual preference is tough. So how do you go about coming up with whether it's new features or adjustments to matter as a whole 
when you probably have so many individual preferences, which are coming into play with usage, do you have a general framework for thinking about those things as a team? It's a really hard challenge of building a product like this. Evernote is this classic example of a product that ultimately became bloated by building every single feature that was requested by every power user and being too many things to too many people. One of the things that we think about is what the benefit of an incremental feature is, who it's benefiting, and what the cost of that feature is. And the cost is really the like important underemphasized thing in this equation. It's often obvious the type of person who's asking for it more powerful ways to sort your tags or whatever. You know there's a certain segment of users who are going to value that feature. The question on the cost side is interesting. It's not just the cost of development time and the trade-off you're making in not building something else, although that is a huge part of it, but it's also the cost to um, what it does to the product for a user who isn't using that feature. Does it clutter it up? Does it complicate it? Does it make the basic thing harder to use? And we try, even when we're developing power user features, to do so in a way that the baseline experience is still very simple and accessible. To build on that, I will say that one of the things that we've come to think now that we didn't do in the past is we're placing a lot more of our emphasis on the experience of the incremental new user who's coming in and focusing on how we can get them to value and get them to a magic moment sooner, as opposed to building a feature that is going to make an already very committed, very active user that much happier. Let's imagine that, to use a kind of contrived example, it's a 100-point scale. 100 is like the most possible value. If you're above a 30, you're going to be a retained user and you're going to be committed to the product. We're trying to get the people who come in and they're at a 10 or a 15, we want to get them to 30, rather than taking someone who's at a 70 and getting them to 75 or getting them to 80 which is not necessarily an intuitive thing because there is this ethos of you want to make the product as good as possible for your best users and serve those users. But there's a real trade-off there. And the way that you grow is by opening up the tent. That's fascinating. One of the things that you brought in last year in particular was and we love this, the ability to bring podcasts into matter and kind of this multimodal reading, I think is how you describe it, where you can read podcasts and you can listen to articles. And I would just love to know the science behind it in terms of how we retain information, how people use those different features. And maybe it goes back to kind of that snackable thing earlier. Maybe the cost of reading an article is too high, but actually if you're going between meetings or something, you can just read something quickly. So you can just listen to something quickly that had been written down and kind of just riff on the thoughts of opening up this new universe of being able to read things that you should be listening to and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. Readable podcast, this feature we launched late last year, for the audience, the basic way that it works is you can bring any podcast episode into Matter, save it in, and we'll generate a full transcript of that episode that is time-synced to the audio. Now, one of the misconceptions about the feature, which is really the fault of the name, because the name kind of suggests this, is that we expect people to be reading podcasts rather than listening to them. And there may be a very small minority of users who really do prefer to read podcasts I mean, certainly hearing impaired, there's an accessibility benefit there. And people who really much prefer to read, they process through reading, they don't like listening to things. 
But the vast majority of podcast enthusiasts, myself very much included, prefer to listen. Podcasts are a medium that are native to audio. There's something about the voice and the tone and the interplay of the guests that is really part of the content. It is not just the words itself. There is a stickiness to the default way in which content is meant to be consumed. Part of that is the language itself. Like written content is written to be read, not to be spoken. And conversations are oral and they're meant to be listened to, not read. And I think that will always be the case. There will always be a bias toward that sort of original modality. And so our intention with Readable Podcasts was to create a companion to that primary listening experience that would allow you to capture ideas as you were listening. So you hear some amazing insight and you can pull up the app and reference it right there and highlight it, take a screenshot, send it to someone, what have you. Before Readable Podcasts, there just wasn't really a way that you could read a podcast. Big exception to that is like going to the publisher site where many publishers, yourselves included, publish the transcripts. Yeah, even your tools around being able to track where in the transcript you are, just to bring everybody behind the scenes. We were impressed at that feature. We had our engineer, Joe, reach out to your team. And that was a good example where the cost to build out something like that was not the highest on our priority list. So props to you guys for building that. But a very good example of something like that. I did want to ask you a bit just on the business model itself. You came out and went towards a free tier, but premium subscription-based model over advertising. Can you just talk a little bit about the decision-making and just in general, when you think about this business and what makes it work from a financial model perspective, how do you work through all of that? It's something that we obviously think about all the time as well. What went into that decision-making process? Matter is a consumer subscription app, consumer SaaS. And it's interesting to contrast that with the business model that the sort of first generation of reading apps like Pocket used, which was primarily ad-based. They later tacked on subscriptions, but the dominant business model at the time for basically all of media was ads. And to make ads work for display ads for a product like Pocket or Matter, requires a really large audience, tens or hundreds of millions of impressions per day to build a really good business. Whereas the subscription model allows you to build a good business with an audience that is an order of magnitude smaller, provided you are providing enough value that they are willing to pay for it. And so it seemed a better fit for the type of product that we were building and the size of the market that we were serving. Great. Well, I do want to transition a little bit. We can loop in matter into this conversation as we talk about some of these pieces of content that we asked you to bring. It's been one of our favorite things to do on this podcast, highlight some of these excellent pieces from history. I think that works pretty well with your business as well. One of the places you could do that very well is on matter. So let's just kick off. You gave us three pieces. We're going to start at the top with a piece that Dom and I both love. Uh, it's one that that we've read very recently, and it was a good opportunity to read it again this week. The Road to Self-Renewal. What stands out to you about this? What made it so meaningful to you? And any story that you would share about it would be great. The question I'd ask first is, well, I want to know when you first came across this, because I think where you first come across something or read something is such an integral part of your affinity with a piece. So if you can start there, and then you can answer Matt's question. Completely. Well, credit to the Colossus 
family on this one. I actually encountered this on an episode of The Art of Investing, where they were interviewing Ben and David from Acquired. And at one point, the host mentioned that Will Thorndike had bequeathed this essay to him. It was very meaningful to Will, and it moved him so much that he assigned it as required reading to the course that he taught. And I heard that. I was like, you don't get much stronger of a recommendation than that. So I looked it up and read it, and I was really moved by it. I ended up sending it to seven or eight people after I finished it, which is always a signal of something that's going to stay with you. What's so great about this essay? It's kind of in the genre of wisdom writing, and he's speaking to midlife, mid-career people, and he is making a warning. This is John Gardner. He's actually addressing, I believe, originally a group of McKinsey consultants. Yes, of course, that's how yeah. all great essays start. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he cautions that there are people in life whose clock stops at a certain point, who run out of steam, they stop learning, they stop growing. And the essay is basically an exhortation to not be that kind of person, to never stop learning and stop growing. And when you state it like that, it sounds a bit banal. And that's one of the problems with trying to talk about wisdom writing like this, because the punch is really in the language, the power of the language, and the tone of the person delivering the language. So the essay is incredibly non-cliched. The language is very sharp, very fresh. The tone for me is what really, I think, puts it over the top. He has this tone of humility and empathy and a sense that we're all in the same boat and there's a gentleness and he recognizes that life is hard and it's very non-judgmental. But at the same time, he's calling you to your highest self and he expresses this belief in the audience and in the reader that seems very credible. He's this sage person and has a lot of credibility. And he's expressing this belief that may be beyond the belief that people have even in themselves. And that was just a very powerful thing to feel. There's this great line. He says, there's something I know about you that you may or may know about yourself. And then he proceeds, you have greater stores of energy than you may, and all these things. But I thought that was a beautiful line. You summed that up so well. It's interesting because it's basically career advice. And normally you would bulk. I don't know who John Gardner is. I still don't really know, even though I've read the piece a number of different times. He has wisdom without ever telling me why I should be trusting him. And for the reasons that you said, the way he kind of builds it up and gets you going, then there are some fantastic lines. So it just tells you early on that you shouldn't become a barnacle, which is like fixed for life in one place. I could wholeheartedly agree with everything that you said. I found it from the same people, Rick and Paul. I don't know if it was in that episode or they talked about it in another one. I think it's one of their favorites as well. So um, shout out to them. Yeah. He hit on that very well. I think he says early on that he curated and tightened this speech so he was going to read it. And it shows because every word counts. I started taking quotes out of it. And I said to myself, I'm going to take every paragraph out of this entire thing. But your point there on his tone, I think there is something very real about that. It's I can often dismiss the wisdom or sagely advice or feel like a lot of it can be repetitive. There's something about this. The only thing I can think of comparing it to is 
when you have a coach who is really hard on you and they kind of tell you the reason I'm being so hard on you is because I think you have greater potential than maybe some of the other people. You want to do it for them too. You feel like now you want to make them proud. And somehow he's doing this in a written form. It's like this somehow personalized without being personalized, which is really powerful. So that's one that feels like you could dust it off continuously. Reading it very recently with kids, this interesting chapter in life, it was kind of this like, ah, little lighter under my butt moment. So excellent. Completely. Yeah. So well put. I think it especially hits with people who are a little bit older and even a lot older, because one of the messages is that it is never too late to escape your fixed habits and patterns and try new things. And he slips in this line where he says, I'm 77 years old and I just took a new job and I'm still learning. And it's such a good point that you know nothing about this guy, and yet his credibility is conveyed through the language he uses and the confidence that he projects. But there's also that little snippet that he slips in that gave an additional piece of credibility to that he's practicing what he preaches. Yeah, what's your excuse in a few more words? Right. (laughs) That's how I read that. The other curious thing about this piece is that I don't know if if I've ever found the original because the piece that I read is on Medium, which has been copied over by someone. And then I've Googled it a number of times to try and find more context around it, but there really isn't very much. There's something from Stanford. Maybe that's the original, but it doesn't seem, it also seems to be copied across. It's kind of just adds another piece of intrigue to this useful (laughs) piece of career advice. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Some follow up homework. Yeah. Transitioning to your second piece, which was one I had not read and very interesting for you to also send it over from Slate Star Codex on basic income, universal basic income, not universal basic jobs. I am very curious. I will just leave it at there. What was the meaning? When did you encounter it? And what stands out about this one to you? Yeah, a bit of a wild card there. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys know Slate Star Codex, like Rita stuff? This led me down a rabbit hole post. I had heard of it, but didn't really know anything about it. Cool, cool. Same. I feel like maybe I was left out or (laughs) you could say I was outside of that world. Same situation as Dom. So Scott Alexander is the author behind Slate Star Codex, now Astral Codex 10, is my favorite blogger. And it's really hard to do him justice because he is such a singular intellectual force. He's like this supernova of production. But for people who are fans of his, there's kind of like a canon. And this piece that I shared is not really in the canon. So it's one of the less well-known pieces. I think it's underrated because I think it's really one of his best. So that was part of the reason I shared it because it was, I I think it's an underrated part of his canon. The second reason and main reason that I shared it is because it totally changed my mind about a topic when I read it which I think is the mark of a really amazing piece of writing. I think it was published in 2018, and I think I read it around then when it was published. Prior to reading this post, I was mildly opposed to the idea of universal basic income, and I had this intuition that having a job is this inherent, irreducible source of meaning and purpose in people's lives and policy should encourage people to have jobs and don't want to give people money and disincentivize them having jobs and so forth. And his post just completely demolished that intuition and flipped it on its head. 
It's really long. It's like 13,000 words. It is Scott Alexander at his best. So it is this mixture of data and theory and anecdote and common sense. And it's kind of like a whole microeconomics textbook. And it's really funny and really fiery and impassioned. And he just makes a very, very persuasive case against a policy of universal basic jobs and toward the policy of giving people money. It is also hard to summarize because he makes a dozen really powerful, persuasive arguments. But that said, there are some really killer passages. I would be curious. I mean, to your point, there's 1,180 replies. And a lot of these are nested replies. So there's conversations. I haven't checked to see if there's any spam replies, but there's a lot of heavy hitting in the comments as well. And just hearing your point in terms of, I thought it was very interesting to see how the idea was presented. And usually I say after three points, they start to get weaker. But I would argue there's 12 points and you could discuss each of them individually, but none of them feel just like throwaway points. So I thought it was very interesting. He brings in Simon Sarris, who I think is a very interesting person and opposes. So there's all types of things. But I would be curious to hear like certain passages that you would key in on. Yeah. Well, here's one where he is responding to Sarris's original essay, which makes the case for basic jobs and this source of meaning and community and so on and so forth. He says, social responsibility, sense of purpose, community, meaningful ways to spend your time. This is some big talk for promoting jobs that in real life are probably going to involve a lot of do you want fries with that. Getting a sense of purpose from your job is a crapshoot at best. Getting a sense of purpose outside your job is a natural part of the human condition. The old joke goes that nobody says on their deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. But the basic jobs argument seems to worry about exactly that. And let's make the hidden step in this argument explicit. Everyone on basic income will have the opportunity to work if they want. In fact, they'll have more opportunity since people who hate working will have dropped out of the workforce and demand for labor will rise. So the basic jobs argument isn't just that people need to enjoy work. The argument is that people need and enjoy work, but also they're too unaware to realize this and will never get the work that they secretly crave unless we force them into it. And then if you'll (laughs) humor me, there's one more long passage, which this is my favorite. Capitalism is a Rorschach test that means many things to many people. Some people think it means oppression, discrimination, and exploitation. Other people think it means any level of freedom better than you get in Maoist China. Still other people identify it with corporations or banks or barter or any of a number of thousands of things. But to me, if capitalism means anything at all, it means, well, remember argument four above about how maybe poor people's lives will be meaningless without work, and maybe they're not sufficiently self-aware to realize that on their own, so the government should make them work for their own good in whatever industry most needs their help? To me, capitalism means shouting, fuck you, at that argument, at the intuitions behind that argument, and at the whole social structure that makes those intuitions possible, and then sterilizing the entire terrain with high-quality, low-cost, American-made salt so that no other argument like it can ever grow again. There are other parts of capitalism, like the stuff about stock exchanges, but they all flow from that basic urge. Capitalism certainly doesn't mean you should never get money without working. Heck, some leftists would define a capitalist as a person who gets money without working. The part where you get money without working is the fun part of capitalism. The thing where most people don't get that is the part that could do with some fixing. So that last part, for example, just took this intuition that I had about capitalism means that people should work and should have jobs and totally inverts it. And it's obviously a much more nuanced, complicated conversation to unpack. But that was one instance of many where he just totally upended the intuitions that I'd had. 
It's like a fractal where these pieces you read, like it just puts me back to reading the whole piece. They were just such good microcosms of the way he put it together. And the point that you both made earlier of like how long it is and how well thought through made me really consider, I was reading it, how much time he would have put just in the planning of read this piece. It got him a bit fired up. He had a reply. But then to make something so long and coherent, like you need to know where your next bit is going to go. This can't be a piece that you just start writing and you'll end up wherever. This had very clear arguments to it, but the writing within it is really precise and excellent as per the bits that you just read. Yeah, it kind of boggles the mind. He also has a full-time job as a psychiatrist, but he's written over 1,500 blog posts, and most of them are this level of rigor and insight and depth. And it's kind of hard to imagine how anyone is capable of doing that. But that's why I use the term singular. I don't want to sort of embarrass myself by waxing too poetic about Slate's Star Codex, but there's a very good blog post written by Jason Crawford about Slate Star Codex and Scott Alexander. And kind of, it's like an introduction that explains quite well why he is so good and what he's about and so on. Yeah, I would back that up. I found that in my research after reading this piece. And as you say, it probably would have helped if I read it beforehand, because I was reading this thinking, who is this person? It brings up an interesting question. As you say, he's got a full-time job in a completely different field to what he tends to write about. A number of great creators don't do it as their full-time profession. It's their like hobby on the side. And it in some ways makes the product better because they have these lived experiences and all they're like thinking about other things. It's less kind of about engagement baiting. It's more, this is something I genuinely believe and just have to get off my chest. I wonder if you have any reflections on that or whether there are just great case studies on both sides of the aisle. I think you're certainly right. I think it applies more with audio content and podcasts, perhaps, than with writing. Certainly, there are examples of people who are have full-time jobs and they're practitioners and they make the time to write and they're just incredibly productive people. But writing takes a long time. And so on the margin, it's going to be harder to do that if writing isn't your full-time job. Whereas with podcasts and conversations, and I know this is part of the thesis of Colossus, practitioners can impart a lot of their knowledge in just an hour or two they wouldn't otherwise have the time to write a book or write a long post because they're too busy doing whatever it is they do. And so audio podcasts particularly are a uniquely suited format for that kind of dissemination. Putting a bow on it, it was a piece that I changed my mind on what is a topic that I think many people would probably dig their heels into the ground on. So says a little bit about you, too, in terms of willingness to change your opinion on something, which I respect. But it also, I think, highlights the piece. Yeah, there's so much fascinating stuff to that. And then hearing about his full-time job is truly wild. There are some special people out there that can do things like that. Transitioning to the last one, and you didn't fall short in terms of following up with more and more interesting, surprising inputs here. A New York Times piece from 2020 on none other than Weird Al Yankovic. So bring me into this one. Yeah, this is a fun one. So this is a profile of Weird Al Yankovic written by a guy called Sam Anderson, who has written a number of profiles for the New York Times Magazine. And the reason that I picked this particular piece, and I want to highlight Sam's work in general, is he loves and has reverence for his subjects. He is writing from the standpoint of appreciation. And by and large, there are too many critics and there's too many critiques and not enough 
fans and appreciators. And that's really the reason that I wanted to spotlight this piece in particular and Sam's work. On that point, I actually heard in Tyler Cowen's podcast in their year in retrospective, at one point he mentioned that the sort of mission of his show is to teach people the art of appreciation. It's sort of implicit in everything that he does. And I thought that was so beautiful. And I was like, yes. But I think that this profile of Weird Al Yankovic really models that. Let me read one passage from it. It's a very long profile that goes into a lot of detail about his craft. But there's one passage that I think will really give a sense of what I'm talking about. Here it is. The crowd was rolling through tantric nerdgasms, sustained explosions of belonging and joy. It felt religious. Near the end of the show, during the course of Amish Paradise, as the entire stadium started swinging its arms in rhythm, I unexpectedly found myself near tears. Weird Al was dressed in a ridiculous black suit with a top hat and a long fake beard, and he was rapping about churning butter and raising barns, and everyone was singing along. I could feel deep pools of solitary childhood emotion, loneliness, affection, vulnerability, joy, beginning to stir inside me, beginning to trickle out and flow into this huge common reservoir. All the private love I had ever had for this music, for not only Weird Al's parodies, but for the originals, now it was here, outside, vibrating through the whole crowd. Weird Al had pulled off a strange emotional trick. He had brought the isolated energy of our tiny rooms into this one big public space. When he left the stage, we stomped for more and he came back out and played Yoda's classic revision of the Kinks, Lola, and then he left again. And I decided that this was the single best performance of any kind that I had ever seen in my life. Weird Al Yankovic was a full-on rock star, a legitimate performance monster. He was not just a parasite of cultural power, but somehow, improbably, a source of it himself. And there's great emotion and personal affection that comes through. But one thing to call out about appreciation, the art of appreciation, is it's not just raw emotion, and I love this. It's being able to precisely describe the ways in which something is good or worthy of appreciation. That's a skill. It's a craft. One thing I realized about this author is I only recently became aware of who he was and realized that he was the author of several pieces that I had read a long time ago that had really stuck in my memory. This profile of Haruki Murakami. There's a profile of Bill Walton, the old NBA star and announcer. He's written a great profile of John McPhee. And all of these profiles had kind of stuck in my memory. And it was only a couple months ago that I connected the dots and realized they were all written by the same person. And it dawned on me that one of the reasons that I resonated so much with those profiles was because of his reverence for the subject and the way that sort of bled through and the enthusiasm of his writing. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you make in terms of his own personal connection to the subject. And I think what you said there last stands out because it's so difficult to thread that needle where you don't want to make it about yourself. You want to make it about your subject. And there was this great book last year on J. Crew, and I thought that the author did an excellent job. She grew up with J. Crew. She cared so much about this brand. She interjected when it was right, but for the most part, she was hands off. But when she did interject, it was excellent. It, it gave some story of why she loved the roll neck sweaters in the 90s and she couldn't take off the boyfriend shirt, yada, yada, yada. But like it really gave you that place and time and appreciation for what it was. And if you weren't around then, you wouldn't have that understanding. And I think his story, I mean, it was very emotional in the Weird Al piece in terms of how he felt growing up. But I think that's really well said. I had not made that connection, but I think it's 
really interesting and it's really hard to do. And I love that only after the fact that you made that connection between him and those other pieces as well, which kind of like, I don't know whether he should be trying to make sure you know it's him, but I kind of respect that it wasn't obvious uh, and it was only after the fact that you made that connection. Yeah, it's a really interesting point about how much an author interjects themselves and their own feelings and personal experience into the piece. And I think that there is a continuum and it's possible to do a lot of that and have it be effective and to be very restrained and have it be effective. And actually two examples come to mind. So clearly that Weird Al piece, he is telling you that he's a fan. He's talking about his emotions. Probably the best example of that of all time is David Foster Wallace's famous Roger Federer as religious experience piece. He writes with such hyperbole and such enthusiasm, but still with so much precision about Roger Federer, how Roger Federer is great. But he is just totally inside that essay. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, someone like John McPhee, who is one of the ultimate masters of the art of appreciation across so many different subjects, he's very restrained. He doesn't interject his personality or opinions at all into pieces. But I recently read his profile of Bill Bradley when he was playing basketball at Princeton. And you can tell how much respect John McPhee has for Bill Bradley. And he describes the ways in which Bill Bradley is a unique player. And you can tell not only that he can appreciate those things, but that he respects them and has affinity for them. And I learned that John McPhee was actually a pretty big athlete and basketball player. And so it would make sense that he would have this affinity for basketball and a basketball star, but he does it in a way that's very subtle and he's not making I statements and interjecting himself. But the emotion, you know, the feeling comes through nonetheless. Think about the appreciation point, building appreciation. It's something that although movie, the industry, the film industry has a lot of critics, there are people that just gather to talk about it's great to go to the movies. It's this experience. And there's this just general push towards appreciation of what's on screen. And then there's more micro examples. I always go to the NFL, really thinking about how can we present this differently? And they stealing the words from acquired, they put a gloss on the product by having NFL films, getting all these extra camera shots, so that when you were presenting it, you kind of had just a much different image of, oh, okay, now I'm understanding this better, and I can appreciate it more, and the lineman's doing this, I would have never thought about it. So they were very hands-on with it. But I think about that with us, where you have all of these creators in all different corners of the world, and how can you give them more appreciation, give them more praise, and talk about it more in instances like this, I think that's a very small example of helping. But I do think it really pushes things forward versus just a world full of critics, which <laughs> nobody loves. <laughs> totally agree. And I think just to go back to the theme I've hit on a couple of times already about the power of podcasting as a medium, I think it does a really good job expressing appreciation and enthusiasm and being fans of things and admiring things just because that can come through in the voice, but also the format of having a conversation with someone, unless you're explicitly trying to like hold their feet to the fire and grill them, you're trying to build on each other's energy and you're trying to present the best version of them and what they do. And I think that's one of the attributes that makes shows like yours and Acquired and Founders and you know even a show like Joe Rogan, whatever you think about it, he is a fan of things. He's an enthusiast. And I think that appeals to people. So well put. 
just the whole last 20 minutes or so of the discussion just reminds you of what you're doing at Matter, but even just the simplest technology of reading and writing of how someone can, you know, be behind a word processor typing out 10,000 words and it can have a lasting and huge impact on millions of people's lives across the world who may read it at the time. They might read it 10 years later or 30 years later and the power of just surfacing those ideas. In a world that's changing all the time at such a rapid pace, the fact that people could still, you know, write on a scroll and change people's lives is something that I think should never be overlooked. It's a very simple thought, but I think it's a really powerful one. I appreciate everything that you do for the community of avid learners and readers around the world. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And likewise, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. He's one of us. He is, yeah. It was like speaking to a long lost cousin about, yeah, going into the conversation was saying how up for this you were, given that the information diet is important to us and we want to find good, interesting stuff out there that people haven't found. It was amusing to me when he was discussing the challenge of curation at scale using technology as well, just like how analogous that is to investing. The sweet spot is great writing that hasn't been widely surfaced. That's where the alpha is. It's exactly the same as finding investments in the stock market. And I was kind of just wondering, what do people do as investors to find those? They tend to like look at screens and like whether you can kind of reduce writing to those bits people far smarter than me will be able to tell me and you know he's ben's obviously trying to work through it but like it was amusing to me just how similar the task at hand is no 100 i hadn't made that connection but you're 100 right the whole thought process behind everything and, and the challenges that you face and personalization for user x versus user y i did think it was very interesting in terms of how they were thinking about prioritizing, getting that new user onboarded and comfortable with the system rather than the person who's fully obsessed going from 70 to 75. I thought that was a a really interesting way to frame that challenge because I'm sure it's a big one. But hearing through all of that stuff, it's obvious to me, I feel it. I think everybody feels it where it's like, I want a better tool, but going about solving that in a way that's scaled and solves the problem for everyone. It's tricky, but it takes somebody, I think, who's as obsessed with this kind of stuff as he is to figure that out. So I wondered whether like an algorithm will ever be able to get to that, because if it gets good enough, then surely everything, you'll never find those bits that are gray and under red, because it will naturally surface all that stuff. So then you'll just end up again with great and widely known pieces. And so maybe you always need like, you know, the weird in the nicest way possible people finding these gems out there on the far corners of the internet i probably again i'm far over my skis in terms of what is and isn't possible with these llms but it's certainly an interesting problem to think about and i really hope he comes up with this tool to find snackable content that keeps me away from my social media apps and instead will keep me learning in those moments where my mind starts to drift Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think there's a lot there. And then just knowing that there's people searching for that stuff. I mean, even the articles that he presented us at the end, two of those were ones I can't say that I came across. And that's always what I'm looking for is things that are off the beaten path, which might be interesting. And solving those challenges for when people consume it, it's a tricky thing. But I think if you build it for yourself, and then sort things out as it goes, I like somebody who's in on the mission. Yeah. I mean, you asked the question of like, how hard is it to build for people that have very disparate views and like likes and interests? I wonder if we do. I wonder whether we think we're really different, but actually we tend to like the same stuff. We tend to like receiving it in the same way. That would be my question. Meaning we as a whole, like the human race, me and you. Oh, no, I think there's definitely 
differences in terms of just how people consume, when they consume, where they consume. You see such different, I mean, just the differences between you hate listening to Shirtekery. I love it. <laughs> you made sure to, to mention that on there. Yeah. Can we, I, you also hey, mentioned you, you can't listen to content, <laughs> yet you work for an audio business. Uh, these were just interesting points you made throughout the conversation that I was writing down. I would need to go back through the transcript, but I'm pretty sure I didn't say any of the words that you just attributed to me. I said very specifically, I prefer reading Ben's work to listening to them. Although the big caveat I would make is that I've really got into sharp tech where he's able to be more free flowing in his analysis. I like him in that audio medium, but I prefer him written and his daily updates. And then I like when people and this is actually something that we get into often, where we will send guests an episode to review and they'll come back and they'll ask for very specific changes to a sentence that they said, oh, I don't like the way I phrased this. And the thing I always try and tell them is people are going to hear it. And if you don't speak in a very specific way, you speak in a way that you waste a lot of words when you're speaking. And that's how people like to receive it, to be honest. Because when you are very pointed, it's very easy to tell when someone's reading something. And so they need to just relax a little bit because people will be very forgiving if your sentence isn't perfectly formed. Yes. I think one of the big things that was maybe not ironed out too is when you think about somebody speaking in a conversation, there's a tone, there's emotion. There is in the written word, but it's not going to jump off the page versus somebody can get very animated when they're talking in a conversation and that won't come across necessarily in a transcript. So I think that's one of those things as well where the emotion coming from the voice, that's audio's biggest advantage. I did love that he mentioned it's never going to be as great in a different medium. I thought that was a really good point and something that just like, once you hear something like that, then you start to see it more and more. I feel like I already am seeing it everywhere, but it's going to really stand out. One question I didn't get around to asking is about whether all of this is in vain, because in the future, we'll just ask ChatGPT to summarize the best parts of what it has read in that day. And so we'll just be ingesting bite-sized content from um, an AI. It'll probably be reading the news. So maybe it'll be personalized and maybe it'll help you out. But even so, it's got to train itself on something. So there's still room. And he said, manual creation will never completely go away. Can't, can't just depend on the algos and the formulas. And um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy with some of that stuff. So you need those independents, the Sherpas to yeah, lead you. There's a job for us still to do. That's right. Anything else? Well, yeah, I need to go and read Roger Federer's religious experience. I can't believe I haven't come across that. I'm actually quite surprised that you haven't either. That's right on my alley. So I need to go and read that. The backstory between Slate's Dark Codex is kind of fascinating. So if you haven't ever come across that one, I would encourage you to go on that site and rummage around, see what you can find. It's my homework for after this, for sure. <laughs> cool. Appreciate that. Matt and Ben have done a very good job. And if you've never gone on a site called Read Something Wonderful or Listen to Something Wonderful, I would encourage you to do that as well. That's where they've curated pieces by internet sensations like yours truly i'm at i don't think you've made the list so i would encourage you to go there and find some <laughs> things to read that you maybe haven't come across before just ignore that and also <laughs> recommend that you you do that <laughs> thank you very much it's a pleasure as always we'll speak to you next week yeah see you then